Remote learning isn't a phrase we used very much before 2020. It was either classwork or it was homework. Of course, COVID-19 and lockdown brought with it the need to adapt. Fortunately, we do have the technology nowadays to deliver classroom content to pupils in their homes. It can all be a bit bewildering, can't it? Which is odd, because I remember it used to be, when we were children at least, that we were the masters of technology. How to work the video player, how to set the clock on the microwave. Now, many of us can feel left behind with this new way. Just how different is digital learning from in-person learning? Is it simply a matter of just getting used to a new way of delivering content? Hello, and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards GCSEs in 2021. Each week, I catch up with these very different teams to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. These could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teams, so you can be sure that we'll be covering topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at technology and the role it plays in education and studying at home. I'm delighted to be chatting to Jane Basnett. Jane is the Head of Modern Languages and Director of Digital Learning at Down House School in Newbury. She has a Master's in Digital Technology in Teaching and is a Microsoft Certified Educator. Jane is also an active blogger on the use of technology in education and especially in modern languages. Jane, thank you so much for joining me today. As we face the new school term, we're more or less inevitably looking at some bouts of remote learning for our children. For the six students we're following, this is obviously less than ideal as they are in their exam years. But similarly, all age groups are impacted. Not only does it bring disruption for many, it's accelerated the pace of technological adoption too. Like pupils all over the country, our sixes schools are using technology differently. Whether it's completing independent studies and then emailing it in, or completing some set tasks online, or maybe even full-on video call-based lessons with collaboration tools. For students and their parents, this new way isn't simply a case of getting to grips with new technology. It's a whole new way of working that they've got to get used to, one where there isn't a teacher in the room to direct learning. Jane, a big one for us to kick off with. Do you think that digital will replace in-person learning for our young people? Absolutely not. Social media talks about ed tech, and that is education technologies, education first. The digital is what enables us to deliver our lessons. It enables us to deliver all the different elements of the teaching that we need to deliver, whether it's introducing new information, whether it's asking questions, whether it's checking understanding. The technology allows us to do that in a remote way. But the classroom, that face-to-face contact is so important, I think. So I do not believe that digital is going to replace the traditional classroom. Because you can see that previous sort of leaps or advances in technology, and it might not seem quite a leap compared to 
the internet. But things like moving away from Slate, I guess, <laughs> very olden days, or the advent of the OHP, as I fondly remember from my own school days, are all really great tools because they help deliver learning quickly. But there's something much more fundamental, I guess, about the fact that that digital and technology has meant that actually the teacher doesn't have to be in the classroom, or rather the pupil doesn't have to be in the classroom along with the teacher. It's just more desirable, I guess, that they, they would be. Yeah. Being in the classroom is, you know, in terms of students' well-being, I think it's a really important thing. It's important for them not to be on their own and they can spar off each other more easily. But we can do those things in technology. You know, if you, you mentioned Microsoft Teams and you mentioned Google Classroom, you can have breakout rooms and they can communicate. But it just misses that spontaneity. You know, when I'm in the classroom and my students are conversing with each other, I can get around and I can see them all face to face straight away. But that's not to say that technology isn't doing the job. It can do the job. You know, it does it just as well. I just always worry about the well-being. I think for a lot of students, they prefer to be in the classroom. What I think is that COVID has forced people to recognise that there are so many fantastic tools out there that they can use beyond lockdown. It's been a good thing. It means that they understand that actually now I can use certain tools out there that are going to tell me straight away. I can at a glance, I can see who has understood and who hasn't understood. There are tools that I started to use in lockdown that I continue to use now when I've been back in my classroom because I can see straight away on my screen. You know, even though my class are there in front of me, I can actually see from the physical writing, you know, what they've written. Oh, they haven't understood this particular point. Those are the kind of tools that we'll carry on using beyond lockdown. I do believe the digital is here to stay. Some people may think, oh, that's it. Covid's over. Thank for hopefully at some point. Covid's over. I'll go back to my usual ways. But I don't think we should be going back to our usual ways. As you explained, there, that hybrid approach gives you what is the best of both worlds. And in a situation where actually we are either in a lockdown situation or year group bubbles have burst and they've had to stay at home, that actually you don't have that luxury. In which case, if you think, just go back a decade or so, we wouldn't have been in this position where actually any education really would have happened very easily. It would have been much more stilted. Going back to the, the well-being point, it's a really hot topic, isn't it? Because before this, a lot of parents would worry about how much screen time their children were having and whether or not it was the right thing to do, whether or not they were losing out on social skills. Whereas in lockdown, actually, we are encouraging our children much more to use the screen. Because it's a different context, do you think that has so much of a bearing on our children's well-being? I have a son who's very much into technology and it used to concern me how much time he spent on his device. But I learned it's not about the time you spend on the device, it's what you do on the device. He's not into social media. He's into, you know, creating things. And maybe he'll play games with friends or maybe he'll create a light show or maybe he will work on learning a new code. That's great. Every time I go in, he's doing something different. And that's the most important thing. If you're spending your whole time just consuming YouTube and watching TikToks, then I think, yeah, as a parent, you would be concerned. Parents need educating in that because I think when it comes to revision, for example, and I've got my 16-year-old revising for GCSEs and my 18-year-old revising for A-levels, I am all for use this tool to check your knowledge, use this tool to quiz yourself, use this tool because, you know, there's so many good things out there. This can sound terrible, but, you know, we have situations where they don't understand what's being taught to them in the classroom in particular subjects 
because of the teacher or whatever. Well, there's just so many teachers out there on YouTube who are explaining the points they need. So this is a really fantastic tool, just like a book was a really fantastic tool. And a pen was really, you know, people moaned about the pen to start with. Why should we write it down? They need to remember it all. I mean, we've got to move with the times and we have to learn how to use things properly. And I think what's interesting about the idea that parents need to be educated, but it's also that way of working, isn't it? So my daughter is doing her GCSEs, not in 2021, but 2022. And her school uh, encouraging them to use Surface Pros and tablets to take their notes. So she doesn't have handwritten notes. It's, it's all on this device. And I just find it bizarre. I can't actually get my head around the fact that when it comes to revising, there's no written notes for her to read or for, or for anything to rewrite. How does she find that, you know, when she wants to check her notes? I'm really intrigued. So she finds it really natural, I guess. I mean, she's digitally native. She's always grown up with technology, so it has no fear for her. But also it's how she's learning how to do it. So someone taught me how to write notes, presumably at, at some point. And that was the style of learning that I got used to. I, I write things down, I refer back to them. She's doing exactly the same, but it's categorized differently it's it's organized and as I say I think it's a generational thing that I'm looking for that physicality of an A4 folder that's got stuff in it badly hole punched well you know I teach in Surface Pro School you know we fully subscribe to it all and I'm now in my third year of teaching using the Surface Pro I'm evolving all the time and this year, well, I tried it last year, but I wasn't forceful enough. This year, for the first time, we use our Surface Pro as a, as a tool, but I also insist that my students have an exercise book. So they come to class with two things, the Surface Pro and an exercise book. And the reason for that is, is because we put a lot of great stuff on the Surface Pro. And when I want them to write, I want them to use the Surface Pro as a tool. It's a resource. It's okay if you've got two big screens. When I'm at work, it's great. I've got a big screen and I've got my Surface Pro and I love it. But when I'm at home, you know, I'll have my Surface Pro, my iPad. And it's not quite the same thing. I need a big screen so I can understand the situation for my students. So I want them to, you know, if we write model answers, we'll sometimes write them in the exercise book. Or if I get them to do an essay, I want them to use the resource and all the fantastic things we put in the Surface Pro, which has all been neatly categorized so they know where it all is but then I want them to write it in their exercise book because they're going to use the Surface Pro to be flipping through it, looking for the right words and the right things to write. You know, I'm like you. I love tech, but it's just another tool in the box and there's nothing wrong with still using paper and pen. And also it seems like this, I would say dual speed, but I think it's probably multi-speeds of learning and working because they're using the Surface Pro's and Emily is writing her notes and she's annotating. So she's also no exercise book at all. Although interestingly, she does then write her own flashcards, which are physical. But when it comes to the exam, she's not going to be using a keyboard or a stylus. She's actually going to have to use pen and paper. So actually, you still need to keep them in the habit of being able to write for an hour and a half. Because actually, that's a, I mean, that's, that's a muscle thing, isn't it? You need to be in training to do that. You get crampy, you get all these other kinds of things. Just make it a bit strange, don't it? I think actually, you can say my normal way of working is by typing. You can ask to type your exams I think I know my daughter's done that she writes perfectly well but for the longer pieces of work she's asked if she could type them so I mean maybe we're moving away from it but I, I don't see a problem with writing but I suppose if it is your way of working and you prefer typing then and you're allowed to I, I believe you're allowed to she certainly has been she hasn't got any learning difficulties she's proved it's her normal way of working so she types her essays 
which does make sense. When I was at university and would like to say college before that, but I'm not really sure that computers were, I mean, word processors certainly, but, but at university it was you typed the exceptional essay, but everything was still done by hand. I don't miss that for my children because actually it was an absolute pain. And if you make a mistake and, oh, I didn't want to put that mm, paragraph make there. Make a mistake. Exactly right. <laughs> then, then it's, it's yeah. tipex and rewrites. I mean, it was an absolute nightmare. And you think, why would you Absolutely. do that? No one was making me write in wax. It doesn't make any sense. If the tech has moved on, let's move on with it. Exactly. And in the workplace, you know, who writes? Who writes anything these days in the workplace? Very few people. I was actually one of those few people. But then I'm an odd case of, I guess, a traditionalist nerd. I don't really know if that works. <laughs> <laughs> of course, why not? You can be your own thing. It's all good. <laughs> that's exactly yeah. what my mum told me. <laughs> so I think that's really interesting, as you say, that when you go onto the workplace and we look at how things are evolving, that people don't do that. And people don't even write, from my own experiences of being in corporate, that actually documents don't get written so much anymore. It's a lot more summarizing. It's a lot more bulleted points in emails. It's much more presentations and decks and all of these kinds of things. And how much of that do you think is coming through in the teaching that's happening at schools? Not then just about the content of French or geography, but actually the skills that underlie that with the technology that they are going to need later on. Well, I don't know. That's a good question. So you're thinking more like the digital skills that they need. Because it's interesting because you mentioned that your daughter is a digital native. And I find that term interesting. So, you know, we're supposed to be immigrants and youngsters are supposed to be natives. But actually, I think you can also be a tourist. I think that the term tourist is better because I think children are natives when it comes to particular tools, TikTok and Snapchat. But I, I consider myself to be a native when it comes to you know, Microsoft Surface Pro using OneNote and using the review feature in class notebooks so I can look at all my students' work. You know, I consider myself to be a native, but I'm actually, I'm an immigrant when it comes to TikTok and Snapchat. So I think we need to be careful with that term, digital native. So the point I'm making is that youngsters actually do need to be taught some digital skills that they are then going to use in the workplace. So for example, collaboration. There are so many ways we can collaborate now. You know, there's whiteboard.fi, I think it is, or the whiteboard feature in Microsoft or Google Classroom. You know, they have all sorts of different things where they can collaborate on a document and you can collaborate in Microsoft as well. How many students and actually teachers do that? Not many, but actually when it comes to the workplace, people work together on a particular document to create a presentation or whatever. I'm thinking about my year 13s recently and looking at their UCAS statements, their, their personal statements they were writing. And so many of them emailed me their personal statements. No, share it with me at least. And then I can make some comments and some suggestions. But they don't understand that. They need to be taught those things. And we run, actually, we do run sessions to teach them some particular skills and things that you can do with the tools that we use all the time. And it is a skill and it does need to be taught, I think. 100% agree. I think for me, the difference between the digital native bit is being born into not knowing anything different than, uh, and typically, I mean, I'm not really sure why, but it seems to be the sort of the advent of the iPhone is heralded as the watershed moment. But of course, there were smartphones, there were all of these kinds of things that existed for a good few years before the iPhone came along and accepting, of course, that it was revolutionary. So although I am a technophile completely and had a P990 from Sony <laughs> years and years ago. Actually, it was my way of thinking is about offline. 
my default is a post-it note or it is to write a list, whereas my daughter isn't like that. And actually, even my son, who is 20 now, I'm not even sure if he was digitally native because he would have been the one that would email the document to you. Whereas Emily, and even in the five-year gap, would absolutely, it would be on OneNote and it would be shared. And and she would look on that to see whether or not you'd made comments, which is something that's salient to the rest of us. I mean, I think that is a skill that needs to be taught or that, you know, it's happened so much, it becomes natural to you, as you say. Yeah, a new habit to get into. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And I, I completely agree that there's, and I think that's what's most interesting about digital and the digital technologies is that it's not just a channel or a new way of working, but actually there is an, an underlying skill set that's entirely different. And whether that's conceptual, so I finished this thing, now what do I do with it? Well, I would have put it in a teacher's pigeonhole or an in-tray, yeah. whereas Jake would email it and now Emily would, well, I don't even know that she needs to publish it. She puts it into OneNote, I guess. I mean, it starts in OneNote. It is just there. She just closes the laptop, I guess. But also there is this element of having the Library of Alexandra at your fingertips. I mean, everything the world knows is there. It's only a a Siri away or a, a Google search. But actually, that's not in itself a blessing, is it? It's danger. <laughs> you need to learn you know, you need to learn the right what you're looking at. Is it correct? For us language teachers, it can be terrible because, of course, they just, you know, Google Translate things. And, you know, a fortuitous moment for me, but not so much for my students, was when at the beginning of lockdown, I said, well, I'll give you 10 minutes now to complete this translation. And what they didn't realise, I was still recording. And when I went back and listened, they realised at the end, oh, I think she's still recording. And I'd heard one of them saying, oh, I can't be bothered to do this. I'm just going to Google Translate it. And so now it becomes a, you know, I'll say to the girl, you know, well, we're going to do this translation. Flossie, don't use Google Translate for this. But the problem is they don't know when Google Translate is right or wrong. I mean, Google Translate is very good these days. And I mean, I've had this situation where a student has basically lifted the whole text put it into Google Translate and then put it back into OneNote and done the translation that way. But what she didn't realise was that in the middle of my translation, I put little notes about, well, be careful when you translate this, be careful when you do this, think about the verb. And so she translated all of those little bits as well. And the problem is with Google Translate or using the internet just to find the answer is that you're not thinking for yourself and you're not learning. For other topics, you need to actually fact check things. Is that correct? How can I check that that is the right bit of information that I need? You know, you can get so many false bits of information. So you have to be aware. So that's a skill to learn about that. For us in modern languages, you know, we have to always think outside the box. And sometimes I think I'm going to make a translation. I'm going to put the Google translation next to it. I'm going to write an English paragraph, put the Google translation next to it. And then I'm going to get them to see what's right or what's wrong to make sure it's correct. But, you know, we have to think outside the box, I think, teachers, because it's there and it's so easy. And it's a it's a lesson we have to teach the students, you know, that you're not learning. You can't use Google Translate when you go abroad or you can, but not for whole chunks. And you can't have a conversation with somebody where you just say, hang on a minute and type the whole lot in or speak the whole lot into your phone. And then it just gives you that there's no way to deal with the conversation, is it? I don't think. Or to communicate. When Jake was very, very little, he certainly didn't do it on his way to his GCSEs. He was asked one of the questions, how far away is the sun from the earth? I think it was. And he Googled up distance from sun from earth. And I guess it was talking about a model or maybe it was relative. If the earth were the size of a peanut, it would. Anyway, the answer came out to be 200 miles. And so he wrote down 200 miles because that's what Google had told him was the answer. As far as he 
knew. But of course, what he didn't do was, as you say, fact check. He didn't look into what 200 miles was. He had no point of reference. Where the information came from. Exactly right. How reputable was it? Is the earth flat? You might come up with yes, (laughs) depending on which source was there. But also, as you say, what's really interesting is that actually learning how to translate, I would like a hotel room with two beds and a shower isn't actually so that you know how to ask for a hotel room with two beds and a shower, presumably. It's actually about the translation. It's about the effort and the learning and being able to call on the resources that you've memorised. Exactly. What we need to teach students to do is to use the internet to enable them to learn. I don't mind students looking up a word if they don't know it, but when they look up that word, they need to know, am I looking up the noun? Am I looking up the verb? Oh, I see it's a noun and it's going to be a feminine. That's how you use the internet. You don't use it just to get the answer. Google is like that awful person in the classroom who, you know, you ask somebody a question and the person next to them tells them the answer. It's this, it's this, you know, whispers it to them. That's just not helping them. And later in life, and certainly in the workplace and beyond, that actually that kind of resource that you can have, the annoying person who can whisper you the answers, actually can be really, really useful. But knowing how to gauge what they're telling you, be able to fact check, as you say, and apply it is the key skill then that we need in the same way that we would be able to look at Encyclopedia Britannica. (laughs) It might take a little while longer, but you can still go through that to find your information. And so the internet and the wealth of resources that come with it are just one more resource. As like I said, you know, for the student in the classroom, the Surface Pro with all the information on it is the resource. But also, of course, you know, there are all the tools that students can use to help them in their learning. And so that's what we need to do as educators is to show them, okay, Google is just another resource. You take the information and you apply it, you adapt it, you think about it, and you make sure that it comes from a reputable source, as you say. And also, while you're busy learning, have you checked out this particular website? Well, like, you know, Quizlet and Carousel Learn and learning apps and all of those, you know, have you thought about all of that? You know, look at those things and use them, enable you to learn. That's what we as educators need to be doing. And in a way, going back to what you said about it becoming habit, If teachers are using these things all the time in their classroom, you know, in their online classroom, then students should be able to go back and access those things all the time because it's just a click of the link. That's the joy of the OneNote or the Google Classroom is that, you know, if you deliver your lessons online, as you know, I've been doing or if I've been delivering them using OneNote, all the links are there. So my students in my GCSE class can go back and click on any of the quizzes that we've set or any of the learning apps, practice things that we've done, just click on them and do them again and again. I do believe in you know more of the same practice, practice, practice. So then it can be embedded in their long-term learning and therefore they can have the space to think when they need to. Hmm. That to me sounds like a fantastic way of being able to condense this universe of resources and knowledge that's out there, because that can be the drawback, can't it? That it can be so overwhelming. As you mentioned from outset, I mean, you can have any question that you like, go to YouTube and you'll find a dozen or more teachers or experts in inverted commas who will talk about it and so the temptation can be can't it for students to waste their time by looking for the wrong resources or by just consuming too much of the wrong thing absolutely right you know just as teachers can spend too much time looking for that perfect resource students also can do the same and if they're watching somebody deliver some information about algebra on youtube how do they know that person's any good but whereas if the teacher has guided them to this place then they should know that they're in the right place and that they're going to be going to be watching somebody who's going to deliver a good lesson for them. And 
having all of these resources in one place, if students know where these things are, it definitely is going to be a time saver for them and it's going to help them in their learning. So that's why resources like, you know, OneNote or Google Classroom, it's the same principle. You know, you put the links in there, they can just click on it, they go straight to what they need. Time saving, as you say, and also useful for them to go back over work. But you know about Rosenstein's principles, you know, there are 10 steps for, you know, for delivering an education, really, for delivering course content and one of the last ones is the weekly the monthly review so if students want to go back over old work then if they've got links directly to the things that they've done with their teacher and then they can do these things again it's a perfect way to revise and perfect way to learn because there is a temptation i think from a student's point of view to simply believe that they're doing good quality revision or studying by sitting there with someone talking to them from YouTube. And it's passive, It's they're not maybe taking notes. And certainly Jake did this, it was, as I've said before, sort of this osmosis idea that if it's just near me, even if I'm still playing FIFA, I'm absorbing stuff. And so I guess it's also helping the students to know what is right for them at the right time. I think students need an education in how to revise. And so it's the educator's job to show students how to do that. You know, if you want to learn, so, for example, with vocabulary, I go through all sorts of different options with them. We all do read, cover, write. So to follow on from that, how do parents know what's best to do? Is there anything that they should be looking out for of the rights and wrong ways? Students need to be taught how to learn. And so at the same time we teach students how to learn, the parents should be there seeing what it is that students can do to learn. I mean, that's more difficult now because obviously we can't, you know, we don't we don't want big gatherings, but students should be sent home with the resources that they need. And parents similarly should be, you know, invited to online meetings where they are guided through. Your children will be using this resource. They will be using Carousel Learn to respond to questions about chemistry and how covalent bonding works, for example. And they will be using Quizlet to go through not just dates but to you know to answer questions in detail and they will be using quizzes that their teachers have set online quizzes and they will be using learning apps to be repeating exercises because repeating exercises repeating doing more of the same is the first step to higher order thinking skills if you like and parents need that information. And similarly, they need to be told it's not all just online. If they watch a YouTube video when, on a particular topic, then encourage them to write, to do a knowledge, you know, what we call a knowledge dump. Okay, what do you remember from that talk? Dump it down on paper. If you have the two-pronged effect, where the students and the parents are together and they are told how to revise, students should be talked to first and know what these tools are. They should be used to them. And then you invite the parents along and the parents then hear the same thing. The students know then that the parents know what the students should be doing. It's a nice full circle and it's the ideal way. And I think many schools do this. Yes, it does take some getting used to it as a parent. So you see them doing this work and say, have you done your homework? Yeah, I've done it. Can I see it? Well, oh, no, laptop's turned off now. See, and it seems suspicious, doesn't it? But actually, as you say, Actually, if you were aware that this is what's going on, and I think lockdown has opened our eyes to this a lot more for those who are fortunate to have the good online resources and the, that constant feedback loop that's coming from teachers and students. And I appreciate fully that there are all too many who aren't in that kind of position. And it has been really, really hard. I think it does help you to see and to experience what's going on and, and to be able to support as best you can then from there. Absolutely. You know, it's well thought out if 
schools can involve everybody in the whole learning process. And as you say, you know, I'm fully aware of it now as a teacher at the computer face, delivering lessons online, as I have done, knowing that parents are there in the background. And we often get parents who write to the head and say, oh, God, I've been hearing the lessons and she's really enjoyed these. And I'm like, God, parents really know now how their children are learning in the classroom because they're there in the background. You know, and I've seen it. I've walked past my son's room. I can hear the teacher. He's not there. He's totally zoned out because of the way the lesson's been delivered. It's been a monologue from the teacher. And that's been difficult. He needs to have small steps, a review, and then new material in small steps, asking questions, involving the students, providing models. That's what should be happening. But as a parent, I've walked past and I've seen this teacher just giving like a tutorial at university, but he's not at university yet. No. And that's so interesting. Both of those, so two different points. The first one being that, actually, as you say, it's like being an observer in the classroom in some cases, that you can see what's being taught, you can see how it's being taught, and I can see how Emily's engaging with it, or, or not, as the case may be. And the other side to that is, actually those teachers who have adapted to a new way of working because this isn't just simply a case of talk to the camera like you would talk to the class if they were sat there in front of you because there are easy ways to disengage and I don't know how any teacher is managing to get the cameras on of all of their pupils if they're doing an online lesson because Emily refuses point blank unless at least three or four other people have and so it's like this first mover waiting to see whether or not I have to because she may not have done her hair or she's just literally just started the day and whatever she wants to and on the one hand I think that's fine get to be more flexible you might as well have the upside as well as the downside of remote learning but at the same time you think if they're not engaging what are the teachers doing and and then seeing actually those teachers who are and I think it's more experienced teachers who are able to command the online classroom more than perhaps the younger ones who might be more used to the technology which I think is really interesting there's certainly some truth in that but one of the things I'd like to point out is that if you're not doing it right in the classroom what happens when you use technologies? This poor teaching is enhanced. Well, enhanced is not the right word. The, the poor teaching becomes even worse. But if you do it right in the classroom and you're delivering the lessons online in the same way, then using technology, then your teaching is enhanced using that technology properly. But if you're the sort of teacher that stands there in front of the classroom and delivers, and sometimes that is okay, but mainly, you know, I think for a good lesson, you'd want to review, you'd want to deliver new information, you'd want to ask questions, you want to provide models, you'd want to guide your students' practice, you want to check their understanding. I mean, these are the steps. You want to scaffold the difficult tasks and you want to give them time to practice. And that is the time. Then you would say, OK, I've delivered the first lesson. We've asked questions. We've done some models together. Now I'm going to give you the second lesson. I'll be in the background, but I'm going to let you work independently. If you want to ask me a question, I'm here. That is how it, I feel it, it can be delivered well. If you're in the classroom and you stand there and you just deliver information, it can be really hard for students to write that information down, get it all down on paper. You know, my daughter has a teacher like that and she enjoys listening to him, but she has no notes. And she finds it really difficult now when she's coming to revise. And she's enjoyed those lessons with him live. But when it went online, she absolutely hated it. So I think, as I say, if it's poor teaching, if it's, you know, if it's only just adequate in the classroom, I think it becomes worse. If this becomes highlighted, the, this poor teaching becomes highlighted online. And that's why teachers need that guidance, I think. And I think on a computer, you've got to keep it shorter because 
you know, that focus constantly on the computer. So I like to give them time away. Okay, you practice, we come back, we discuss. And I think that's a great opportunity, isn't it? And I should say that teachers weren't prepared for this any more than anyone else was. I mean, to go from a classroom environment to a camera or pre-prepared or, right, okay, I'll do this task independently and send it back to me next week was not the way that teaching was ever taught to teachers or the experience that they've had. So we're all in this position of trying to figure out what's best as we're going along. But there is a real opportunity, isn't there, for this sort of mixed economy of learning. So a bit of delivering, right, okay, let's test your knowledge with a carousel, Quizlet or a Kahoot or whatever these other tools might be, and sort of mixing that up to try to to maintain interest. Yeah, I think the short, sharp is really, really important because of the ability to focus for sustained periods of time. I mean, what we have to remember as teachers is that my, especially secondary school teachers, you know, my double lesson is one of many double lessons for these students. And if they're constantly online looking at the screen, that is, you know, that goes back to the point we're talking about before. And although they're doing something worthwhile, it is tiring, I think. You know, I, as a teacher delivering full lessons all day, I know I feel exhausted and I have to think about that when I'm planning my lessons. But I still maintain, when I'm planning my lessons, I still try and stick to the routines I had in the classroom. So those things I've mentioned already. And I always try and involve my students and that may be by asking them questions or please write in the chat function what you think the answer is I mean even at the start of the lesson the well-being thing give me an emoji to tell me how you're feeling they like doing that and that actually lets me know that I care about them I know how they're feeling if somebody's feeling really under the weather I might not hassle them too much once I've done the questioning I may give them a quiz so then that's actually time away from me I don't have to talk. They don't have to be listening. They can just focus on what's on the screen and answer the questions. And then once we've introduced new information, I say, right, go away in your exercise books or on a piece of paper, write some answers so it gives them time away from the screen. I think you have to think carefully about those things. And not every teacher has this fantastic facility that I have. Some teachers have to say they may have to record themselves delivering a grammatical point or delivering a point about development in geography, development of cities or whatever. They may have to create a video, give that to their students and say, right now I want you to answer these questions. And they don't have the facility that I do. So for them, it's much harder, I think. Then I think that's where as parents, and you mentioned before, and certainly we've talked about it in previous episodes, that actually parents can sort of help with that kind of thing, can't they? Because if they know they're getting the video content and that there are questions that need to be answered, that actually the parents can, to whatever extent they're able, ask questions. So what was that about? What did you learn? What was that? That sounds interesting. Tell me a bit more about this. Or encouraging them to use Quizlet and all of these other great free resources that are out there to help almost like a classroom assistant, get around and talk to them if the teacher can't get to each pupil. It's true, and that's assuming and hoping that the parent has the time and the energy to do that, having delivered their own work online. So that would be the ideal if that could happen, but it's difficult, isn't it? We don't know what each child is facing. I suppose we, as educators, need to bear that in mind. Mm. I think that's the biggest difficulty, isn't it? That as a teacher in a classroom, you can pick up on the visual cues, you can gauge the mood, and you can then adapt to it. Whereas everything that you've explained is you need to preempt that and plan ahead that the mood might dip. And I love actually what you were saying earlier about just starting each lesson with the emojis, just so that you know how they're feeling. So you know, maybe I'll avoid picking on them or looking like I'm picking on them, asking them too many questions. If then, if then, I'll if then, make them an easier question. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yes, because it does yeah. come back. And I think the education piece is obviously vitally important because they want to end this year 
demonstrating what it is that they've learned. But it's a challenging time for everyone. And I do think that well-being first and foremost is is what we should be paying attention to in our young children. Yeah, absolutely. I read a headline today that mental health and loneliness has never been as big, not since the end of the Second World War. So, you know, these are really tricky times and mainly we can be upbeat. But of course, I think everybody becomes down at some point about the whole thing. So we have to do as much as we can. It's an important role, I think, that educators are playing now. And then, of course, educators need to look after themselves as well. If they're not feeling upbeat and well, then it can be difficult to impart that to your students. But as much as possible, we need to be upbeat and to be there to help our students and to as you say, maintain that education, some sense of normality. We are going to do the work, we're going to learn, which is a great thing. Learning is a great thing, not just for exams, but learning for learning's sake, you know. Let's impart our love of our subjects to our students and give them a purpose. And as we said from outset, actually, although this is a bad situation to be in, no one would actually ask for this, actually we're quite lucky given the resources and the technology that we have and the fact that it can be used in so many different ways. It's not just a a one-trick pony. This is something for everyone. Can you imagine if this was 10 years ago, even just 10 years, maybe five years ago, if it was going to have to happen, this was the right time because we have the facilities mainly. Um, Many people do, but of course I'm not discounting the fact that there are many people who don't. But many people who do have the facilities and we are able, if we use the tools correctly, we're able to deliver good lessons and we're able to engage our students. It's still possible. Jane, thank you so much for talking with me today and for sharing your thoughts. This is a brave new world. Often the pace of change can feel dizzying, but our children have grown up in a world of smartphones and iPads and stable good internet connection. For them, they don't approach this with the kind of fear or nervousness that we parents might, but that doesn't mean that they instinctively know how best to use it. After all, there is nothing natural about it. Having the world's resources at your fingertips, or voice command, is both a blessing and a curse. On the one hand, the answers are all there, and they're there immediately. But on the other, so are all the inaccuracies and the falsehoods. It's now more important than ever that our children can fact-check and, as Jane said, learn to think for themselves. I'm sure that we've all had instances where a son or a daughter has regurgitated facts that make absolutely no sense at all, or they've copied and pasted an image that just didn't work in context and they found it in a Google search. Not so long ago, I remember asking Emily about where a cell biology fact came from only to find that she'd found it from a Google search on a page from some random health and beauty spa in Texas. Digital can be an unparalleled resource when it's used well, but it can also be an embarrassing highlighter of mistakes when it isn't. And of course, it's not just the knowledge that's made possible through the internet. It's a whole new way of working, of communication and of entertainment. Can you even imagine how our children would be learning right now without Zoom, Microsoft Teams and Google Classroom. Although we might worry about how much time our children are spending on their devices, there's no denying that the awesome potential that we're starting to tap into. I found it fascinating to be on the fringes of my daughter's live lessons too, seeing the way that she gets on with tasks and how she interacts with the teacher. 
when else would I have had a chance to have seen that? But what's also clear from these remote lessons, and from talking to Jane, is that this isn't an alternative to teacher-led learning, and I for one don't think it ever will be. But it can be an exciting complement. Building on last week's episode with Sam Twizzleton, we also know that we as parents have a role to play here, especially as lockdown stretches further into 2021. It would be easy for us to encourage our children to make notes, or otherwise just like we did, and it can be reassuring for us. But for me, this isn't about resisting the change. Far from it. I'm really excited about what can be done. But I do recognise that I often retreat to the safety of this is how I used to do it whenever I'm trying to help my daughter. But increasingly, this is not how their world is shaping up. And to really help them flourish, we need to learn more about the tools that they need rather than beat the drum of our tried and tested approach. Thank you for listening. I hope that you found this episode interesting. If you did, would you mind taking a moment to leave a quick five-star rating and maybe a review? It really helps us to reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people. Of course, sharing the link to this and other episodes with friends on social media is always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.